0: There's a whole group of people that want to start a company, but it's so much easier to find all the reasons not to do it than the reasons to do it. First, you have to figure out whether you can actually solve the problem you think you're setting out to solve, but as soon as you think you've solved it, then it's about how do you build this enduring business, and the go-to-market is a really important piece of it. And so for me, it was having these milestones along the way, even though they're small and they kind of seem insignificant in the rearview mirror, to help give me conviction to see where it went. So we decided to start Cloudflare. I just remember classmates who knew us well would come to me and be like, Michelle, why are you starting a company with Matthew Prince? And then people would ask Matthew, including like our advisor, why are you starting a company with Michelle Zatlin? Like it was just not obvious. But at the end of the day, you're showing up at work every day trying to make it happen you get to decide the way you want to do it and there's lots of ways to be successful so i think seek the input but don't do it just because someone else did it that way and ultimately you're in charge
1: from ggv this is founder real talk where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences i'm your host glenn solomon managing partner at ggv capital If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Blacharczyk from Airbnb, Mikkels Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Michelle Zatlin to Founder Real Talk. Michelle is the co-founder and COO of Cloudflare. Cloudflare is on a mission to help build a better internet. Its solutions help businesses with internet properties stay secure, performant, and reliable. The company's been on a tremendous growth arc since its founding 10 years ago by Michelle and her co-founder, Matthew Prince, while they were together at HBS. Michelle was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum, one of the top women to watch in technology by the Huffington Post, and one of the top 15 women to watch in Tech by Inc. Magazine. Just a few months ago, in September 2019, Michelle got to ring the bell at the New York Stock Exchange, taking Cloudflare public to much fanfare. And These are topics we're going to discuss today. Michelle, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So First, I want to go back to the early days of Cloudflare. You met Matthew, your co-founder, while you guys were at HBS. Did you enter HBS thinking you wanted to start a company? You studied chemistry in college and you worked in marketing and and product management before school, so was Cloudflare on your radar or something like Cloudflare when you got to HBS?
0: Uh, I think it would be more accurate to say something like Cloudflare when I got to HBS. I remember writing my essays, uh, so if you're thinking about doing your MBA program, you have to write essays, and um, often one of the essays' topics is, what do you want to do when you graduate from this program? And I had worked at a bunch of different tech companies before business school, some small that were growing, some big. And I just remember going to HBS and the answer to that entrance admissions question was, I want to go work for a company like Google before it was Google or Starbucks before it was Starbucks. What I meant by that is I wanted to be part of a company that was making a huge impact in the world, Mm. but join early and be part of the team that really... Made it all happen, and so I spent two years at during my MBA program looking for a company that was still small where I could join, but I thought was onto something very big, and that that's what I spent two years looking for. And I was supposed to go work at LinkedIn, which back in you know the June of two thousand and nine fit that description. It was also really small, yeah. Yeah, it was I think four or five hundred people and growing. And I remember I went to the person that I was supposed to work for. Uh, He's still there, and I and I said. Thanks so much for the job offer, but I have this idea that we had started to work on at school, and, and I said, I really have to see where this idea goes, so I'm not going to join join your team. And he looked me straight in the eye. I remember we were at the cafeteria at LinkedIn down in Mountain View, and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Michelle, you were making the biggest mistake of your life. Because he was at LinkedIn every day. He knew it was going to be a rocket shift. He's like, it, we're going to go public. We're going to do this. Like, What are you doing? And had I gone there, my life also would have been probably just fine, but- you know, instead, went to see where this kind of idea that Matthew Lee and I had been working on on the side and where it would go, and that idea turned into Cloudflare. So, I did not go to business school thinking I'd have to start a company. I kind of fell mm-hmm. into it, mm-hmm. but I did want to be part of something and be part of the team that made it big. And I think Cloudflare does fit that
1: description very well. But that decision you had to make between something that seemed really exciting and was more of a. Sure thing. As a four or five hundred person company at the time, versus really taking that plunge and starting a company. That's it. Feels like that's a metaphor for a lot of moments at startups. Were you always a risk seeker? Uh, does that get you excited, or, or is there something about you personally that that kind of gave you the the strength and fortitude to make that decision?
0: I never know whether this is like history being revised because of you know where, 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 all the information I have yeah. today, but back being in the moment. You know, when we went public, you know, ten years later, my older sister, so I, I went to school in Boston and my older sister lived in Boston, she still does, and it was the weekend before we were working on Cloudflowers School Project, and it was the weekend before the business plan competition at school. Mm-hmm. And I booked a trip to go to Las Vegas to meet up with my then boyfriend. And my older sister called me and gave me a really stern talking to. At some point, she was yelling (laughs) at the phone. And she's just like, what are you doing? She's like, this could change your life. And I kind of pushed back to her. I'm like, Nicole, it is a business plan competition. Like, chill out. And now, you don't know my older sister very well, but we have this relationship where I'm a little bit of a sponge. I listen to feedback quite well. And so I still went to Las Vegas for the weekend to meet up with my boyfriend, who is now my husband. So I actually think that ended up okay, being so that was a, good that was a good decision. <laughs> but I, I changed my flight to go back to Boston to leave earlier so I wouldn't be so tired for the business plan competition the next day. I actually think that ended up being a really good decision too. And Because
1: you guys won that we competition. We
0: ended up winning that competition. And now, it's not because we won that competition that Cloudflare is successful. It's not that. But what the, the reason why I tell this kind of long story is that There are some people who are like, I'm going to start a company no matter what. And I think that that's a totally different set of people. So if you're in that group, what I'm about to say doesn't apply to you. But there's a whole group of people that want to start a company, but it's so much easier to find all the reasons not to do it than the reasons to do it. And so one of the ways that I got comfortable to say, "Hey, I want to go try this idea versus go take a good job offer from LinkedIn and, you know, for you it might be Google or Facebook or it might be one of the the consulting firms." I mean, just enter any brand name company there was this idea of some of these momentum or some of these kind of stripes in your hat along the way. Mm. And so we won the business plan competition. It Probably made no difference to Cloudflare's outcome, but it gave us one more thing to talk about. And at that competition, there was a judge. There was a venture capitalist who was part of the judge, and he said to Matthew and I and Lee, "You have to come in and meet our partners." And we're like, "Whoa, we're so early, we're not ready." And they're like, "No, no, just come meet our partners. We just want to get to know you." And so next thing we knew, after finals, we were going into uh, it was Highland Capital's offices to meet some of their tech partners, and they were like, "They have a summer program, EIR yeah. program at Highland. Why didn't you apply?" Well, we didn't know about it. They said, well, let us help you get in. And so we applied for it a little bit late and they accepted us. And next thing I knew, we were part of that program for the summer. And none of these things made Cloudflare successful, but it gave me a cover when I was talking to my parents or when I was talking to my friends or if I was just talking to my own psyche of saying, well, there's just like a little bit more momentum to go see where this is. And I think that for the group of people where it's, again, I know lots of people who say, I'm going to be a founder, I'm going to start a company no matter what, and they just spend their whole time looking for the idea. And again, that's great if that's you, but that was not me. I didn't have to have the company. I just want to be part of the team that made something big. And so for me, it was having these, these milestones along the way, even though they're small and they kind of seem insignificant in, in the rear view mirror, to help give me conviction mm-hmm. to keep going to see where, where it went. And so I was literally joking with my sister at this dinner 10 years later of how, like, thank you for yelling at me and saying, like, get your head on straight, because you need people in your life to say, what are you doing? This is a big deal. And I think that some people have people yelling at them saying, What are you doing thinking about starting a company? That's crazy. And I, I'm very lucky that I had people in my life saying, You should take this seriously. And I think that I'm really lucky in that regard. Okay,
1: I want to pick up on the theme of momentum sure. uh, a little bit later. But your, your comments really ring true to me. You know, Having had the, the, the good fortune of working with a bunch of companies that started super small that have now gotten bigger, I've seen how very little things that are seemingly small can you know, start to add up. And have a big impact over time. But at the time they occur, it's difficult to point to them and say, oh, that's going to change our lives. But in hindsight, sometimes you look back. And so it's it's sort of like being ready and prepared for the luck or the good fortune that might come your way and really capitalizing on it. Sounds like, like you guys really did that. So another question I wanted to ask, Elad Gill was on Founder Real Talk uh in an earlier episode, and one of the things he said is like, Hey, a founder has three jobs. He's so great in simplifying things. One, set strategic direction, two, raise money, and three, don't fight with your co-founders. Uh, which I think is it's it's brilliant in its simplicity and it's accurate. You and Matthew have been together for 10 plus years. You I assume were uh, students together, classmates at, at business school. How did you decide he'd be the right Co-founder, and you know, looking back on the ten-year-plus journey you've had together, what are the things that you know you think have made you guys strong? And if you've if you've had tough times, how have you managed through them? We could do a whole episode on this. Um, It was Matthew Lee and I who
0: started Cloudflare together. Matthew and I are still here. Lee, our third co-founder, had to leave a few years ago because of some health reasons. But Cloudflare wouldn't be who it is today without all three of us. So. The company really becomes a reflection of its founders. That's mm-hmm. true. So that's the first thing. The second thing I will say that it's really important for people to understand. Matthew and I are really close today, but we were not close on day one. And actually, this is kind of a counter narrative to some of the things you hear from other really amazing people who funded a lot of companies or built a lot of amazing companies. About you have to know your business partner really well or founders really well. Matthew and I did not know each other very well. Matthew and Lee knew each other quite well. They had worked together at his prior company, so Matthew knew his technical prowess. Matthew and I knew each other from business school as like part of the student body, right. but we were not close friends at the time. We were not hanging out on the weekends, or we were not, I mean I knew a little bit about him and he knew a little bit about me, but we were not close. So we decided to start Cloudflare, I just remember Classmates who knew us well would come to me and be like, "Michelle, why are you starting a company with Matthew Prince?" And then people would ask Matthew, including like our advisor, "Why are you starting a company with Michelle Zatlin?" Like it was just, it was not obvious, and I think that's an important mm. message to get out because I think sometimes people think it's really obvious. And again, if it is, that's amazing. I also think there's lots of success stories where it's not obvious, and. For us, where it worked really well was Matthew did do those three things that Elad described. He's really good at raising money, he's an amazing storyteller, he's great at setting the strategic direction. And then, you know, I think I credit Matthew, Lee, and I for not for not fighting as founders. That that takes a collaborative effort. That's a collaborative effort. But Matthew was really good at setting direction and, and the fundraising. Like he's extremely good at that externally. But I also think that there's other parts that matter when you're building a company. And now I'm telling a story I've heard Matthew tell others. So this is retold through his words. His prior company, he started with somebody who he knew really, really well. And they had really lots of overlap in skills. Mm -hmm. And what happened is, because they looked the exact same, they were both lawyers and technical, and they fought over every single decision in the company. And so he, when we started to work on CloudFlare, he was looking for someone that looked different than him. And so Matthew Lee and I, we are like a Venn diagram. Mm. We have a tiny bit of overlap. We have to have a shared vision, you have to trust each other, you have to be able to communicate. We had a tiny bit of overlap and we covered a ton of surface Mm. area. And so what that meant was, it was actually hard at first because we didn't know each other very well and we cared about different things. And we had to figure out how to work together. But once we figured out how to work together, then it was like magic because we'd never fought over who was doing what. So often we have founders come to us saying, I want to do this, but my founder wants that. And the question I get most, or Matthew and I get most, is how did you and Matthew divide up responsibilities? It was very rarely ever came up because we had such different skill sets. So yeah, he was great at raising money and setting the strategic direction. And then I was really good at saying, okay, if you want to go there... Here are all the things we need to do to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And helping make sure that we, especially, that seems easy at first, but it becomes really hard when you want to start to change the direction of where you're going. All of a sudden, you have to rework processes, you need new people in the organization. And I was good at getting those things together. And then Lee was the technical architect. Once we start to get that, working trust together, mm. it really started to work. So I think about thinking about your co-founders as Venn diagrams. You want to try and cover as much surface. It, it, it's not the only way to make it work, but it's a very effective strategy to making it work.
1: Yeah, I like that. You know, we, We've we had other founders on the program, uh, like Mitchell Hashimoto from HashiCorp. He and his co-founder, Armand Dadgar are their best friends. They're both super technical, so it's not... Like it's it's different, but when I think about another, like Rich Waldron, the the founder of Trey, came on another one of our companies that's doing fantastically well, and he's got two co-founders. They're best; those three guys are best friends. So a little different, but their skill sets are quite complementary to each other. So I think there's there's something to that, and uh, it's a it's a great lesson for people to think about as they're looking for for co-founders because that that is a really tough search.
0: Well, the other thing that I'll say is as I've as I've built Cloudflare nine years in is you know you ask five smart people but how they did it, and you can literally get four different answers. Yeah. And there's lots of ways to be successful. And I actually think that's like one of the biggest lessons I learned. I learned it a couple years ago, where it was like, you should go and you should ask and you should listen to what people say. But at the end of the day, you're showing up at work every day trying to make it happen. You get to decide the way you want to do it. And there's lots of ways to be successful. So I think seek the input, but don't do it just because someone else did it that yeah. way. And, and, and ultimately, you're in charge.
1: Yep, those are words that are both uh, invigorating and scary to people (laughs) you're in charge. So let's talk about Cloudflare. You guys are on a mission to help build a better internet. That's obviously a really big idea. And you've said that a piece of advice you'd give to to other founders is to to go after something really big. I think you've said in the past, like, hey, starting a company, whether it's going after a small opportunity or a big opportunity is going to take the same amount of work, so you might as well go after something big. Just tell us about why you think the big opportunity is so important, and you know, break it down for us. What does that do for you if you're going after the big opportunity? What are some of the advantages that accrue to you as a founder in, in a young company when, when you've got a big story to tell? So, I think there's two things actually um, here. So, the first is
0: I meet a lot of entrepreneurs who think they need to pursue an idea that they're passionate about. And I actually think the word passion is not the right word, I actually think the word proud is the better word. And I think there's a lot of things that you can be proud of that maybe isn't also a passion in your spare time. And I think two and and sometimes founders go after things that they're passionate about. And so I I think proud, work on something you're proud of. I think that's really important. The second piece of it, is there a business there? Like and that's where originally when I said that, what I was thinking about is it's like you want to be proud of what you work on and you want to make sure there's a business model there. And it's those two things in combination that are really, really, really important. And then the third piece, which I think gets forgotten about is are there already people doing it really well? Because if there's already a lot of companies doing it really well, like why do you need a third company or a fourth company in the space? Or a fifth company or a sixth company or a tenth company? Now, if there's something unique to what you're doing, then sure. But if not, you should go work for one of the other companies that are already in the space. And I think like when people are trying to figure out what to do, it's like, am I proud to work on this? Is there a business model there? And how many other players are there already doing that? And why now? Why me? Because if not, again, you should go work for one of those other companies and learn a bunch of stuff that's really actually what I think I'm trying to say. I just sometimes I meet founders who are so passionate about something but they're just not a good business idea. Right. And working on something that doesn't have a good business model, I don't care how good your tech is, without a good business model, it just doesn't matter if no one's using it, it doesn't matter. And vice versa, there's a lot of actually ideas out there that there are good business models but you might not be personally proud to work on it, so then you shouldn't do it either. You shouldn't just do it because the business model's there. Some people don't care, some people are just like, I just wanna make the money, the business, and that's fine, But often the trifecta is when you're like, wow, I love what I'm doing, there's a huge mission, and there's a business model there. That's when it's fun, because that's when you see growth, that's Mm -hmm. when you get to attract really great people to come and who want to see it. You have customers rooting for your success. Like All those things align, and I think that is really magical, and it's actually a lot of the things that entrepreneurship is built on. It's kind of those sorts of things. The reason why I've a little bit of revised my big company or big market point of view is actually my husband. I was telling you before, so my husband started a company that's actually the exact opposite of Cloudflare, where they are bootstrapped, they're profitable. So trying
1: to make the internet a less safe place? No, they're
0: <laughs> not doing that. The way they've approached it, they aren't taking venture funding. They're not swinging for the fences. They're doing much more sustainable growth approach, and their company is doing great. And I kind of have seen it up front of mm. how like huh, they have a good business model, they're passionate about what they're doing, they have happy customers, and so they're probably not going to take that company public one day, but it's still a great business. And so I've kind of Got refined it. what I've said Got slightly.
1: It. it makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things you mentioned earlier about the benefit of going after a big opportunity is you can attract great people to come along with you, and recruiting great people and, re- and attracting and then retaining them is so important. And I feel like if you have pride, if you are truly proud about what you're doing and you've developed a business model that works, people are going to feed off of that. Uh, so you should have the energy you need to go attract great people uh, as a result. So I, I like I like that reorientation. It it's exactly
0: sense. right. I mean, it doesn't matter how good your idea is or how good you are, you need a team to make it happen. There are lots of great jobs out there. When people come to Cloudflare and they interview here, they all are looking for, of course, they, the role needs to be right, but the most common thing I hear is, I want to go to a place where I'm really proud of the work we're doing. And so this comes back to being proud of the company you're building and the problem you're solving and the good business model, those things aligning and making sure that there's a, a reason for your company existing with in terms of competition in the market. Like I think that that really helps with recruiting down the road. And I think that because of that, I've gotten to work with amazing people and recruiting is always hard. We spend a lot of time on it, but I actually think it's been a little bit easier for us than some of our peer groups because of this. Not not because we're such a better place to work, it's because they're like, wow, I really believe in what your company is doing and you have a business there. This is a big business opportunity, this is a big market opportunity. Yes, I want to change jobs because I have a mortgage and I have families and i got to save for college. Because I believe you have staying power, like those sorts of things, feedback. And when you start a company, I don't think people are thinking about these things. You're just trying to say, "Hey, can I get my idea to work?" Yep. The big aha for me was at some point I'm like, "Wow, this idea is going to work." Okay. Well, as soon as you realize your idea is going to work, it's about building the company to make it enduring. And and I think that founders don't talk about that enough or take it seriously enough.
1: Well, speaking of a business model that's working. You guys, as I, as I mentioned in the preamble, you just went public recently, which is fantastic. Very few companies get to that milestone, so congrats on that. And as part of that, obviously, you filed an S1, so in going through that, I mean, there, there's really some amazing statistics in here. You say that 10% of the top million web properties use at least one of your products on your platform for free or paid, uh, so some aren't paying you, but you have 20 million total internet properties that you're securing, which is mind-bogglingly crazy. So obviously there's something really special about the Cloudflare business model. Tell us a little bit about like the way you get such broad distribution, because that is something unique. Having 20 million of anything is almost impossible, and you've done that in only 10 years. How does, how does that happen? I hope Glenn
0: that people listen to your to your podcast and realize, huh, and they they think about the next generation of founders think about it and learn from our go to market yeah. and then take it and make it even more uh, more efficient, and, for and we're sure to drive
1: you from twenty to thirty million because there are so many people listening <laughs> who have web properties that are yet unsecured. I would love
0: that. Yes, all the entrepreneurs can use Cloudflare. That we'd we'd love to have you as a customer. So we're a SaaS based business, a mm-hmm. subscription based business, and it's an amazing business model. It's a fairly nascent business model, and I think it's more, being getting more and more well understood. And we were able to learn from some other great SaaS models, and I think that we really were inspired by them. And and then again, we made it our own. I think before there was a sense of you either had to go to market, because this is really about go to market, Mm -hmm. and actually... If there's one topic that is not talked about enough, it's go to market. It's totally really important. Great. It is. I did not realize how important it was, but like it's like oh my god, it's it's so important. It's, the faster you learn that, the better you can build mm-hmm. your business. Back to like first, you have to figure out whether you can actually solve the problem you think you're setting out to solve. But as soon as you think you've solved it, then it's about how do you build this enduring business, and the go to market is a really important piece of it. And I think like. What well, we love are efficiencies. We love to be efficient. Like, we really obsess over efficiency at Cloudflare. And we build a globally distributed network and we offer a free service as well as a paid service. And so, we had to be efficient from in terms of how we deliver our service to millions of customers around the world from day one. And so, we obsessed over it. But it's actually been reflected in our go to market too, in the sense of, before there's a lot of these SaaS businesses that were very enterprise-like, where it was like they had they went after the enterprise, and that looks like a very specific go-to-market motions with sales teams and whatnot. And that's great; we have that, we love that. Of course, if you're servicing the Fort global two thousand, they want to talk to a salesperson. Someone's going to spend a million dollars, ten million dollars a year with you. They want to call somebody. Yep. It makes sense. But it turns out what the internet has done, and what Cloudflare has done, and lots of other companies ahead of us have done is they've opened up the market. Where they took these services that were previously reserved for just the largest organizations and made them available to developers, entrepreneurs, small businesses, the nonprofits, the governments, where they don't, they're never gonna pay us a million dollars. A small business in, I don't know, Kansas City is never gonna pay a million dollars for a service to Cloudflare, but they might pay $20 a month. Right, And so how could we create a product mm-hmm. that services both segments? And what I love about Cloudflare, and again, there's a lot of other SaaS companies ahead of us that just always went after what was described as the long tail or, or the SMB market. And I actually think there's a new go-to-market motion, mm-hmm. and there needs to be a word for it. I don't have the word yet. Maybe you'll have the word, Glenn. Whereas this idea of you can be Goldilocks, where you can have a very efficient Self serve go to market model, right? Where you serve everyone, which is what we have, right? We have a global solution that serves all customer types. And you might be a pay as you go customer, which is more like the small businesses or developers or entrepreneurs, the nonprofits, where it's you have the price point that can set that and they come up and it's very self serve. You're not really talking to anyone. But as you grow up, market. Mm-hmm. Uh, to these larger organizations with the same product you can also service them and you have a different go to market to kind of support that and i think that there's this new approach that saas companies have unlocked and i think we're one example of that that have shown it's possible and i think there are others that are in the wings and I, in that case you can build a global company with one product
1: that services all those customer types that's really really efficient yeah we've been very focused of late on developers you mentioned uh, who are becoming more and more important as like, every company in the world becomes a software company. And open source has been a big route to market for us. We've been finding you know, companies that are uh, innovating in, in sort of commercializing open source, if you will, because that's one way to get to you know, lots of companies, lots of individual practitioners up front, many of those from small companies. But then a, t- a trick and a challenge for a lot of companies is figuring out how do I sell to larger businesses? We've also seen it like with API models, like companies that are developing a service that's available via API, which, which developers will adopt rapidly, who oftentimes start small. Twilio is a great example. We have uh, Trade.io in our portfolio, another good example. But like then how do you kind of make the jump? And I wanted to ask you, because you guys have made a jump in, in the same S1 you report, that you've got over 400 paying customers who are paying you more than this is as of June. It's probably a bigger number now. Over 400 customers paying you over $100,000 a year. Some of those companies are big. I think you said you also have 10% of the Fortune 1,000 in your S1. Yes. So, yes, you're serving a lot of that long tail, a lot of a lot of small businesses in Kansas City, but also a lot of very large companies. How do you manage to do both? Like that is not easy to do
0: and there needs to be a new word for it. I I think it's possible and again, I think we're doing it and I, I hope that people the founders listening to this think, "Oh man, I'm going to have a go to market like Cloudflare because it is you can it is Goldilocks where you can have both the the self-serve okay. the pay as you go and the enterprise. We've, I don't think we're the first. I think I think we've learned from a lot of companies ahead of us and there's going to be a whole other slew. So how do we do it? I mean, I think that this comes back to as founders, we don't talk enough about go to market and why it's so important. And back to aha's I've had along the way, where it's just w- the way that you work with a customer who's paying you, let's just call it five hundred thousand dollars a year. They want to interact differently than a customer that is paying you less than a hundred thousand dollars a year, and that's okay, right? Yeah. It's still self serve, right? Like we have a very efficient business model, but. Guess what? We have an account executive who calls on those larger customers because they want to talk to somebody. That's how they're used to buying, and it would be irresponsible of us and to our shareholders if we didn't didn't engage with potential customers like that, right? And now, is that salesperson also engaging with a small business in Kansas City? Probably not, because right. that doesn't really the the economics don't work now. Having said that, I want happy customers even if you're the small business in Kansas City and so if you call us up, we will help you as much as we can, but really like we set up different functions within the organization to meet our customers where they are with the whole philosophy that our product is really easy to use that we serve everyone so you can it's self-serve. You don't have to talk to us. That $500,000 customer, if they, a developer within that company has a problem, they can sign up for Cloudflare just like the small business mm-hmm. and start to use it. And then we have good systems internally saying, hey, this is a company that we might want to get to know better. And then we outreach proactively to them saying, hey, let's get to know with you. How else can you be using Cloudflare? What else can we be doing for you? Do you know about all these other sorts of things? And over time, grow the relationship.
1: And so I think all three are really important. A lot, a lot of companies that start bottoms up and have success making the product really simple and easy to consume, like you guys have done, then have challenges when they break into larger accounts, because inevitably larger enterprises have very specific needs, and they might want to take the product in directions that aren't exactly congruent with simple and easy and good for the small business in Kansas City. How do you guys manage that tension when, to the extent it occurs internally here at Cloudflare? the
0: snowflakes. We always say the one-offs, <laughs> exactly. the snowflake syndrome. Every Fortune 1000 is a snowflake, though. Right, right so. that is fair. Actually, I Actually, think that today that becomes less of an issue for us in terms of allocating product resources mm-hmm. and product roadmap than it did. Kind of, there's like a I think a period of a company's history mm. when you're still fairly small and growing really quickly, and you just don't have the right. You you're just trying to keep your head above water. Yep. And that's just the symptom of scaling a business. It's hard to invest ahead of that demand growth. So, there's just a couple of years of just everyone paddling really hard to keep their head above water. And so, there were definitely years where we would say, Do we really want to take that customer on? Or, oh man, maybe we can't expand into this part. I think I just was talking to a founder where they wanted to get rid of one of their business units because it was this exact problem where we are having product resources, basically internal fights about who's getting enough resources and we're not allocating enough I think that's actually more of a leadership question to manage. Mm. I think it's definitely, if you take a step back and you have a framework and you you sort it out and you say, okay, what's best for the company? And somebody can decide, the CEO, the founder can decide, we're going to do these things, that means we're not going to do these things. Not because they're not important, we just can't physically do everything right now and we'll get to it nine months from now, 12 months from now, 18 months from now. And again, I think it lasts a couple years and if you can bridge those couple years of where you're spread too thin and you can get the organization onto the other side you emerge a much stronger company mm-hmm. and much better at that and you emerge with a much more diversified customer set it
1: sounds like having a sort of a clearly defined referee to help with those tough calls and prioritize uh what was important for you guys and and maybe that's a good sort of good message for founders who are going through that it's it's a high class problem to have and getting to the other side, I imagine for you guys was sort of instituting really professional product management and, and building out your engineering team to be able to support more programs at the same time. But I get that that transition is super tough. Well, this just comes back to the. I mean, it's actually a combination of all the three things we talked
0: about before. Eliad's point of one of the jobs of the CEO is set strategic direction. I mean, that's kind of that is a strategic direction. Exactly. What are the product resourcing yep. is going to be like during those times? Like, and it's not clear. You can't call anyone up and ask them. Because again, if you call ten people up external to the company, you're going to get ten different answers. So at the end of the day, you're going to have to make some hard calls, and people are going to be unhappy. And it comes back to the recruiting piece. You're exactly right. Like I just remember we brought in um, a really great head of product. Her name's Jen Taylor. She's still here today. And you know she was at Salesforce and Facebook and Adobe before she came to Cloudflare. And she just was a very professional product leader there is no way she would have joined us a day earlier than she did because she had a great job right. and she, and right. and we needed her two years before we could hire someone like her. But there's kind of, again, a couple years where you really are onto something, but you don't quite have the professional operators you need to help scale to get there. And I just remember Jen coming in she's like, okay, got it. We got to prioritize. We got to find the points where we can find some operational leverage and where we can bundle all these lists. She's like, these three things are actually the same thing, just said different ways. And, I just remember her coming in and being like, oh my God, like it gave us some breathing room and kind of like helped build the processes to make it more like repeatable. Mm -hmm. And then she had a really strong, she has a still today a really strong um, head of engineering. And one of our measures is how many things are we shipping this quarter? And by features and products. And the idea is that in the year, we've more than doubled the number of things that we can ship in a quarter because they, you know, Uzman is our head of engineering, what he says is we're going to invest in the factory floor. Like yeah. we're going to build the processes so that it lets our team build out great product. And so whether it's the enterprise or a small business or the nonprofit or the developer who has a request, we want to try and cover as much surface area yep. as we can. And let's just increase the velocity for our teams to be able to be really productive and ship great things for our customers. And so you can get there. It was a couple years where it was really hard to get the professional operators who can come in because they just don't want to join a company with less than 100 million in revenue. Some will. I made, I made that up. I kind of think 100 million in revenue run rate, forward revenue run rate, is the magic number where you can truly get true professional operators that you want to work with. To come into your company, you can get a couple before, but it's really hard or very expensive. Well,
1: well, speaking of kind of the team, I wanted to ask uh, lastly about you now have offices in seven countries, Uh, you're well north of 1,000 people, your team is very global. You obviously have a can do culture here, and people are on the same wavelength in order to do all the things that you've done so successfully. How do you manage to keep everybody kind of rowing in the same direction and keep the spirit of being a startup getting so much done? While growing pretty big and pretty distributed?
0: Yeah, well, that keeps me up at night every night. So I I don't, I I, I I feel like I, I mean, I have an answer to this question, but then I always think, I take a breath of air of like, are we doing enough? So we love shipping. Like Cloudflare, we're all about getting things done. So, like, start middle ends. Turns out that's a skill. Some people can't start projects and some people really cannot ship projects, whether it's an engineering project or a marketing initiative. And so We talk a lot about like ship, 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 rolling thunder, just like momentum. We Mm -hmm. talk about it all the time. And we have a lot of mechanisms built into the company to help keep that top of mind. So, for example, we plan a budget for the year, of course but every quarter we do a company-wide kind of two-week planning process where the whole p- company whether you're on the product team or on a finance organization go through kind of a planning process of what they're going to deliver for the company in the next quarter and I could pull it up right now if I wanted to a spreadsheet that kind of lists the top you know 100 200 most important things by team, who the owner is, and whether it's green, yellow, or red, and we're kind of midway through the quarter. And at the end of the quarter, we kinda of, we we grade ourselves on how we did. And so it's silly, it's not that everyone's going through that spreadsheet to look at all two hundred things, but the fact that we have it in one place, yeah. we check in, we hold ourselves accountable, and then we do it again next quarter. And we are looking at it at the leadership team level and we talk about Okay, we kind of grade ourselves across the company. What percentage of the projects either got done to completion, shipped, or almost shipped to completion? And we we kind of have a goal that we want that within. And then for the things that don't get shipped, or we thought were important, but halfway through the quarter, at some point during the quarter, we decided we're no longer important. Why? What did we learn? And basically, planning is a skill, just like anything else. It's like a muscle. And so the more that you not me, I, it's actually, I'm actually a good planner. How do we get our m- directors and the managers feeling ownership over this goal that they put into the spreadsheet that they feel like they're building the muscle around planning mm-hmm. with a start middle end and they're like, oh wow, I needed this from Mary in the other department and Mary didn't know that I needed it from her. Well, guess what? Next time, they make sure they've worked that out before they put their project on the deliverable list. And so that helps drive things in the right direction. So it's one sort of thing. The other thing that I think we do a good job of is we have a company all-hands meeting, which a lot of companies do. If you don't, I highly recommend it. It's just like a drumbeat of communication, a place to talk about good things, bad things. Even though 80% of the time it's neither of those things, it's just kind of business as usual. But at ours, it's less about Matthew and I or the executive team. We have a, we call it open floor, where anyone in the company can sign up to for a three to five minute slot to talk about a project that they worked on and why it's important and what happened. And it's an opportunity for people to stand up and showcase their work. People, their colleagues get to learn about it, why it's good for Cloudflare or customers. And it's just this tradition we've had for years. Mm, and I think it's that. it's love just, that. back to this idea, how we're often, here. How often do you do the all-hands Every Thursday, and we oh, rotate wow, between the morning and the afternoon. So we, one week we'll do it at nine in the morning, so our nine fifteen. So our East Coast off, like our Austin, our New York, our DC, our Chicago teams, and then Europe can dial in, and we record it. And the teams that are sleeping, because we're a global company, then watch it Friday during a defined time together. Mm-hmm. And then the next week we'll do it at five fifteen for our Asia teams to be able to dial in. And then the Here. next day, and the next Friday, the next day, all the all the offices that were. You know, at home with their families or sleeping, they watch it together the next time. So it's it's just baked into our culture of CloudFlare, our standard operating procedure. And it just kind of reinforces this idea of shipping, show your work, we're making
1: progress. Momentum matters. Momentum matters. Okay, Michelle, we are at the time of the episode where you are now on the hot seat. I'm going to ask you just a couple of questions. We're going to wrap up with just a couple of questions that just say the first thing that pops to your mind. Tell us what your favorite book or article is that you recommend to other founders. Oh, if you're a SaaS company, you should definitely
0: be following Jason Lemkin. Yeah. I say that so regularly. Jason Lemkin is writes a ton about SaaS founders. It's super helpful. Jason's
1: fantastic. Yes. That's great. SaaS, and Saster is a a great event uh, every year. Okay, one piece of advice you wish you'd gotten early in your founder journey? Besides all the ones I've already told you. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I think, you know, I think be human. Go above and beyond for people joining the company or leaving the company. It's it, The world is very connected mm. and burning a bridge is n- almost never worth it, even if the other person is in the wrong. Take the high road.
1: When they go low, you go high. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> that's a good, that's uh, a good line. Okay, last one. One thing you miss about not being back in Saskatchewan. I did my homework. Yeah, where I grew up. Uh, the Northern Lights, that's easy. Mm, beautiful, I've never gotten a chance to see those. They must be pretty spectacular. They are They are spectacular. Awesome. Well, this was a spectacular episode. Thank you so much, Michelle. Really appreciate it, and best of luck to Cloudflare in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at at ggvcapital or ggvcapital on WeChat.